0: the whole and and this is what's blowing David's mind he's saying God you you know everything you're omniscient and yet you are searching the deep crevices of my heart and my spirit God you are reading my life even though you are omniscient and know all things I think the greatest thing David says in the psalm is verse 17 he said how precious are you and your thoughts to me O God how great is the sum of them if I could count them they would be more in number than the sand. And I don't think that's a metaphor. I think that's David's way of saying each and every day, God has that many thoughts toward us. And none of us think that way, right? We think God's off running the universe. He's involved with people in places of power. But God every day is searching us. He wants to know us. He's scrutinizing. He's analyzing, David said. And his conclusion was, this is too wonderful for me. And, and let me say this. This is what made David... The man after God's own heart. People come to me and they say, how could he be the man after God's own heart? He's an adulterer. He was a lousy father. He wasn't a great husband. He committed murder. And this is the reason why. David never followed other gods. David never sought anyone but the God of Israel. And 30 years later... In his old age, he's looking at God, and he's still in awe, and he's still in wonder. It's like a husband looking at his wife after 35 years of marriage, and he still has a gleam in his eye, and there's still a spark of love. David sitting back after a glorious life saying, God, I am still in all of you, and I wonder why you're even involved in me. And I hope that's your course this morning, because it's mine. You know, I, I think of Paul, I haven't yet... Comprehended that which has apprehended me. I still haven't figured this out. God is so vast, I'm still in love with Him. The Word still speaks to me. I pray this is where you are this morning. So, as we look at the Psalm, God has given me this weird gift. I can remember sermons 20 years ago. I can tell you the points, where I was sitting. It's a strange gift, it's just something I have. So, the first time I heard my pastor speak about this Psalm, he had four points. God knows me, verses 1 to 6. God is always with me, verses 7 to 12. God made me, verses 13 to 16. And God leads me, verses 17 to 24. Here's the problem. He taught it over four weeks. I'm going to do it in one morning. So hopefully there's no ovens, no roasts in the oven, and you have no place to go. It's a rainy day. We'll be here for a while. I'm only joking. Uh, let's, Let's look at the first part. God knows me. You know my lying down. You know my waking. You know the words before I speak them. Now, this is quite obvious, right? God knows us. If He created the world, certainly He knows us. But did you ever fly in an airplane and you're flying into a metropolitan city and you see all the lights? Did you ever have a thought come to your mind how can God know everybody? How does he know every teenager in every room, every elderly person? I, I, I know he's God. It makes sense. He, 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 he created the world. But can he really know every individual? And then they invented the GPS. That little device in your pocket knows where you are, knows where you're going. I freaked out one time. I rented a car and it had one of these fancy GPSs in it. And I was in Chicago, and I was lost, so I was cutting through a gas station, and literally the voice said, once you go through the gas station, make a right. And I'm like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. And think about it, these GPSs, they're going to be in the Smithsonian Institute in 50 years. They're going to look trivial later, And, and it's a device made by man. It knows where 7 billion people are. And it opens the door to understanding, yeah, God certainly does know each and every one of us, and his thoughts are toward us. So God knows me, right? But I gotta move past the realization that he knows me, but that he wants to be intimately intimately involved with me. That he's analyzing my life, that he's writing my life. This omniscient God who made me in his image wants to be known by me and knows me. Now, this opens the door to one of the great questions we all have, and it'll be my first question in heaven. Well, God, if you're omniscient and you know me, then how much of what I'm doing is my will versus what you have programmed for my life? Now, skeptics turn this on their head and they'll say, well, there can't be a God. Because if God is all-knowing and he knows your life and everything you've done before you do it, then you have been pre-programmed and he knows what you're going to do. Therefore, if he judges you, he judges you for what he already knew you would do. And we're all going to ask the question when we get to heaven that You know, where was God's sovereignty and human choosing? You know, where where did it intersect? And the closest I can get is to every occurrence on earth that there's a human side and a divine side. You know, I'll share a little bit more about this at Christmas, but, you know, Isaiah said, unto us a child is born. So Mary and Joseph, there's a census. They go and they put Jesus in a manger and they wrap him in swaddling clothes. And from the human side... A child was born. From the divine side, a son was given. That that at the right time, Jesus was born, born under the law, born under a woman at the exact right time. So, So there's this merging of the divine and the human that our brains can't comprehend. Now, again, so many of us struggle with this because we think, oh, no, no, I have to have free will. I have to have free will. And you do have free will, you're made in the image of God. But God also knows what you're going to do, but he's involved, he's scrutinizing it, it, it. Again, it's too wonderful for me. If you struggle with the idea of free will, sovereignty, and somehow God programming your path or, or determination, understand this, Stephen Hawking, who's an atheist, doesn't even believe in God. But he's, he'll even say that as a physicist, your life is determined. So you got up this morning and you drank a cup of coffee. Maybe you ate eggs or pancakes or whatever. But the idea is you ate. Now, why did you eat? Because it's a biological function. Now, it was your choice what you ate. But the idea of eating was determined for you. Dawkins says we are all dancing to our DNA. So there is determination in some way. And there is choosing. I love what Spurgeon said. He said, God's knowledge of us is thorough and exhaustive. Do you ever go through the TSA line and, you know, you got to get searched and they pat you down, they put the gloves on and all? And they're not sure if you're carrying something or not, but God's not like that. It's almost like God's patting us down, but he's patting us down with intimate knowledge of us. He formed us in, his, in our mother's womb. But he knows us. Verse 5 says, you have hedged me behind and before, and you've put your palm upon me. It's the words of a potter. He he formed us. That's why we bring Mike and Pam Roselle here, the potter. I've seen them 38 times. Every time I see them, I learn something. I learn about the the softening of the clay. I learn about the molding, the shaping. I, I, I learn about the path God has for me. And I love at the end, and I think most of you have seen it, where Mike is making this beautiful vase, and then at the end, he chops it down, and everybody goes, oh. And he said, you thought I was making a vase, but the whole time I was making a bowl. And so that's what God's doing. He's hedging us in. He's got his palm on us. There's a path for each and every one of us. But here's where the rubber meets the road. You know what I need to know God knows me? When I get in my car, and I pull over on the side of the road, and I say, God, I don't get it. I got up this morning and the only thing I wanted to do was help people. I wanted to add value to people. I wanted to help my wife and my kids and my staff and the people I love. And God, somehow my blind spots and my failings. You know, I feel like I failed everybody today. But guess what, God? You know me. I don't even know me. My heart is desperately wicked. But God, you know me. You know the motivations of my heart, God. I haven't done the things that people have accused me of doing. I was watching TV one day, and T.D. Jakes was on an interview, and he was talking about how he wanted to start a daily program, a talk show, secular talk show. And of course, people were saying, well, he's a pastor. Why would he start a talk show? And he said, well, here's something I've learned in 35 years of ministry. Anytime you step out and do something for God, there will be haters out there. Criticizers. People telling you you shouldn't do this and you shouldn't do that. And he said, anytime you do something for God, that's what's going to be in your path. And that's why you've got to settle the issues between you and God. Now, I'm not saying wise counselors and and those things, boards aren't important. But what I'm saying is that at the end of the day, it's got to be between you and the God that knows you. And I think for David, this is so important because... The thing I admire, David, and again, the thing that makes him the God of God's own heart, the man of God's own heart, David never fought back. He never fought back at Saul. He was the rightful king, and yet he put his trust in the God who knew him. God knows me. He knows you. It's amazing. It should blow your mind. Second thing the psalm tells us is that God is always with me. Now, that's good and bad. The bad side about it is God's always with me. And sometimes Christians don't like that. Sometimes Christians say, God, why don't you stay over there for a while? I got some business to do. You know, I'm reading through the Psalm, and and you can't read it without thinking of Jonah, right? You know, if I go into the heavens, you're there. If I go into the depths, you're there. The uttermost parts of the sea, come on, I mean, this, this brings up Jonah, Jonah was a prophet. God gave him an assignment. Here's your assignment, Jonah. You're going to preside over the greatest revival in human history, these Syrians. They were ruthless and barbaric. Jonah says, no way. I can't go to that land. I know your heart, God. I know your mercy. He goes to Jaffa. He punches a ticket to Spain 3,000 miles away, and he runs from God. And you know the story. He's thrown into the sea. He's swallowed by a great fish. He finally comes to his senses. He pleads to God. He spit out on dry land. And he preaches a seven-word sermon, in 40 days Nineveh will be destroyed, and the greatest revival in history breaks out. Now, it wasn't a sermon, seven words. It was the object lesson. You ever see a guy come out of a fish or a whale after three days or three nights? It's not pretty. You know, it's like a combination of Uncle Fester, Frankenstein, the ugliest person you've ever seen. He's saying in 40 days Nineveh is going to be destroyed, and they're like, oh my gosh, we're going to look like him, and they repent. And he learns that God has a path, and you're either going to get there the hard way or the easy way. And that's why the Bible says the way of the backslider is hard, because God is still there. I believe a person who was really saved is saved, even if they're not walking with God. And and, and God pops up. You can't get away from it. You're sitting on a bar stool, and something's going to come on television. Some athlete's going to talk about God. It's going to bring him to your remembrance. The prodigal son, he remembered his father's house. You can't outrun God. Now, the good news for all of us is we're never alone. He's always with us. We're never alone. Mary Pfeiffer is a PhD in psychology. I read her book years ago called The Shelter of Each Other about raising kids, and she had some case studies of problem kids in a family. She's a secular psychologist. Uh, Secular psychologist, amazing analysis of the problem. They're very weak on answers. In fact, at the end of her book, her answer for parents with problem children is turn the TV off for 30 days and take the family camping. And I gotta tell you something, it doesn't sound spiritual. Try it. It will change your family. Anyway, listen to what she said. She said, we have a crisis of meaning in our culture. The crisis comes from our isolation from each other, from the values we learn in a culture of consumption, and from the fuzzy self-help message that the only commitment is to the self, and the only important question is, am I happy? We learn that we are number one, and that our own immediate needs are the most important ones, The crisis comes from the message that products satisfy and that happiness can be purchased. You ever hear the term retail therapy? You know, I'm kind of down in the dumps today. I'll go to the mall, buy this fancy shirt or shoes and feel happy for a little bit. Last week we talked in Psalm 112 about the blessedness or the state of the abundant life. That happiness is something that's inward. It comes from knowing God. I'm never alone. I can go home today on a dark, miserable day, open my Bible, and I can feel God's presence. Last night, we were talking about people that we know that are intercessors. You go to their house, and it just feels holy. It feels like somebody's been praying there. Never alone. Through all the trials we go through. And, and here's the beautiful thing. When you know God, you're going to be involved with people because God loves people. That's the community we call the church. Paul Clark was here last week. He stayed with me most of the week. Uh... He ministered to our staff this week, and one of the questions we have for Paul is, Paul, you know, we have people that get instantly involved here. I mean, they're here two weeks, they're working in Journeyland, they go to Israel with us, and then we've got people who never seem to get connected. What do we do? And he said, tell the people who can't get connected to buy a pickup truck. Put an announcement in the bulletin that for the next 15 weekends, we're going to help people move, and we have a truck, and we'll help you move, do whatever you want. He said, they will be more connected than they want to be connected. Free advice. Jesus demonstrated to his disciples that he would never leave them or forsake them. After the resurrection, he would meet with them and they thought it was a ghost and then he would leave. And then Thomas would show up and say, nah, guys, come on, can't be. He goes, unless I can put my fingers through his scars, I'll never believe. And then Jesus appears. He said, Thomas, come up. Go ahead. You know, put your fingers in my scars. And what Jesus was showing them is I'm there whether you see me or not. He's always with us. He'll never leave us. We're never alone. Third part of the psalm, this is my sweet spot, guys. God made me. God made me. Remember Psalm 8? God, you made us a little lower than the angels. Angels have spirits and no bodies. Animals have bodies and no spirits. We're the height of God's creations. We're spirits all in body. God, you made me, right? I didn't evolve through natural selection. You made me. Now, let's take this to its fullness. Look at verse 13. You form my inward parts. You cover me in my mother's womb. I will praise you. Why? I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Look at the screen. Um, we don't look at this a lot, but, you know, this is a baby in the womb. And uh, if you look at it, you can just scroll the pictures. If you look at it and you just wonder again, the, the formation of a human body in, in, a, in, a, in a woman's body is just overwhelming and we forget. And I can give you all the stats about an embryo and what's going on and it's staggering. But but here's what David's saying, and if you think it's David's opinion, then you don't believe this is the word of God. It is the word of God. You know what David's saying? God is involved with every birth. See, the great lie of our day is what Peter said, scoffers, skeptics, unbelievers would come in the last days and say that the fathers fell asleep, and all things continue as they did from the beginning. In other words, natural selection, this unguided process brought us to where we are. And we're at the top of the food chain or somehow you know birth is just something that happens you know the, the sperm meets the egg etc cetera, etc cetera. no that's not what the bible teaches the bible teaches god is involved with every human being in the womb every single one jeremiah said before i was formed in the womb god said i knew you and i ordained you to be a prophet under the nations compassion and justice weekend we're going to talk a lot about the sanctity of life, and the miracle of birth, and how God formed us. You guys have heard me talk about this a lot. So I'm just going to give you one little nugget this morning about how we are fearfully and wonderfully made. And and I've been to some of the greatest places in the world, right? I've looked at the Parthenon, the pyramids, and, and I crack up because, you know, when you're at the pyramids, you're telling people to get out of the way. So you can take a picture of these stones, but the people are more staggering than the stones. You know, human beings are the greatest thing on the Earth. It's, you know, a closed-loop system that can do what we do. But let's take one small part of the human body. There are trillions of them. We used to call it the simple cell until the electron microscope came along. We know it's not that simple anymore. It's one of the most complex things on the planet, cells. Let's take heart cells, just heart cells this morning. So heart cells have within them the cadence and the rhythm of the heart. It's fascinating, doctors are fascinated by this. Not only do they have the cadence and rhythm of the heart, they have downloaded into their cells all the information of all the other cells in the body who are also moving to that cadence. So doctors have come up with this idea that the body, or at least cells, have a sense of belonging to one another to make the whole system work. So when doctors came up with this idea of heart transplants, people died in the early days, you know why? Not from the new hearts, they were functioning fine. But when the new heart cells came in, the rest of the cells in the body said, No, intruder, foreigner, those are bogus cells. And they rejected them, and people died. And now you understand why Paul said that the church is like the human body where we fit and function together the eye, the hand, the cells, we cooperate, we work together. It's amazing. The human body, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Victoria Sweet wrote a book, it's fascinating, called God's Hotel. It's about the last almshouse in the United States in San Francisco. And she talks about how when she was studying to be a physician, she was looking forward to the day where she would do her first autopsy. And she couldn't wait. And the day came and she was very nonplussed by the experience. They opened the body, they examined all the organs and such and she said there was something missing the little black box as she said was gone and she went back to her medical books and she couldn't find anything so she went to medical books that predated our modern age and she found the latin word spiritus this is a medical textbook where it said spiritus the breath of the body that's what's exhaled at death it's what gives life to the body there was another word Amia, which means the mobilizing force that awakens the body, where we get animation. In other words, she found out that there's a ghost in the machine. There's something running the human body. And when it's over, it's just flesh and bones. Now, we could get into the brain, the eye, which is a radio receiver. Uh, We can get into so many things. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. We are walking miracles. But that's just the human part of us. That's just the the physical part of us. German philosopher Immanuel Kant wrote, Two things fill the mind with ever new and increasing wonder and all. The more often and the more intensely we reflect upon them, the starry heaven above and the moral law within me. David was blown away by the universe, the moon, the stars. Right? He couldn't even comprehend it. But then there's a moral code in us. If we're just flesh and blood, if we just evolved along the evolutionary plane, why is there a moral code in everyone? Why, if a woman gets raped, does everyone know that's wrong? Why, if a little girl falls down, will we all run and pick her up? Because God put eternity within our hearts. With his finger, he's written his law on our minds and our conscience. That's why Tom Brady could say, I've won four Super Bowls. Is there anything else in life? That's why there's a sense of want. If the brain was an organ, why would we have right and wrong feelings and emotions? David said, I am fearfully and wonderfully M-A-D-E. There was a God who made me. Just like he made Adam and he formed Eve, he has made each and every one of us. He's intimately involved. And finally, the God who knows me and the God who is always with me and the God who made me, his purpose is to lead me. There's a path for each and every one of us. Look at the final verse of the entire psalm, verse 24. See if there is any wicked way in me, God, and lead me in the way everlasting. Search me, O God. Know my heart. Know my anxieties. Lead me in the way everlasting. There's a path for each and every one of us. There there is a road for each and every one of us. Joseph had a road. Daniel had a road. Noah had a road. We all have a road. And think of Joseph's road. You know, if Joseph doesn't grow up in a dysfunctional family, he's never thrown in a pit. If he's never thrown in a pit, he never gets to Potiphar's house. If he never gets to Potiphar's house, he never gets in prison. If he never gets in prison, he never becomes prime minister. If he never becomes prime minister, he never knows Pharaoh. If he never knows Pharaoh... His clan is never saved from famine. Was it God's plan that he'd be born in a dysfunctional family where his brothers throw him in the pit? I don't know. I don't know where sovereignty and human choosing meet. But I know there's a God who's working all things for his good. There's a path for each and every one of us. Daniel's path was to leave Israel. As one of the best and brightest of Israel, he would spend his best days in a foreign land serving a foreign king, but he changed the course of this world. And God has a plan, and he's leading each and every one of us. You know, my plan is I grew up in Philadelphia. I didn't even know where Delaware County was. Somehow God made me, or I chose Widener University. I got into Delaware County. I never left. Started a Bible study. It grew to 25 people. Started another Bible study. It grew to 25 people. And then I upped and moved to New Jersey because it was cheaper, and I thought my desire to start a church here was gone. I disobeyed God. And the house I moved into, I knew the street address, obviously I lived on it, was a new development, and I remember four months later they put a sign, they put our street sign in, which is right at my house, and it was Fellowship Lane. And for the next nine months, that's what happened, we were in a small church, I met Pastor Steve and the worship leader that started here, and we experienced fellowship like we never had before, I was driving 45 minutes to a church before that. And then we tried to move to Delaware County. That didn't work. It's a long story. But we wound up back in Jersey on a new house called David Drive, which were the wilderness years for us. Then we tried to move to Delaware County again. This time we sold our house, couldn't buy a house. So we stayed in an in-law suite with people in the church. And every day, now they lived on Camby Chase Road. That didn't mean anything. But their last name was Grace. And in their garden, they had their last name. And when I went in and out of the in-law suite, every day I saw Grace. And it was God's grace because we were building this church, and it was half the distance between where we were and where we were going, and I was tired, and it was God's grace. And then we finally bought a home, and one day my secretary scared me to death. She said, Bob, you know that story you tell about street signs? Now you live on Valley Road. And I'm like, oh, no. (laughs) And I did go through the valley. I shared that a couple weeks ago. The reason I brought Eric Metaxas here is when you hear Bonhoeffer, it'll be like you were there. And I'll just tip you off a little. Some of you have read the biography. Bonhoeffer was in Germany. Because his parents were affluent, his dad got him to the USA. Safe and secure. But you know what happened here in the USA? And, And this is the crazy part of the story. Bonhoeffer was on a search to know more about God. He went to the Vatican. He was Lutheran. But when he got here, you know what changed the trajectory of his life? A black church in Harlem. A black church in Harlem. And God spoke to him. And you know what God said? Go back to Germany. Safe in America, he went back to Germany and gave his life. And that was God's will. Sat with a woman Wednesday night, divorce class. Pastor Bob, I love it here. I love everything that's going on. I'm a brand new Christian. We talked about her situation. I said, so I said you know what's going to happen? I said, start reading John 1, and the next day read John 2. And the books you're buying in the shelf, read a chapter a day. And I said, you know what's going to happen? God's going to speak to you. And he's going to lead you on the path everlasting. And I bet you, you're going to make hard choices. David made hard choices, and so did Daniel, and so did Bonhoeffer, and so have I, and so have you. And that's the Christian life that the God who plums our life, who's writing our life, wants to be intimately involved, and He searches us deep and wide. Because as the master potter, He knows what's best for us. And I'll be the first to say, I want to be led. I want to be led. I look at the great leaders that have lived on this. I I mean, I would have served in Lincoln's cabinet. I would have played for Mike Dicka. I love great leadership. And we're led by the greatest leader that has ever lived, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when we started Psalms, I talked about the harp, the lute, and all those instruments that we don't have. And I prayed, and we got a harp. You guys excited? Yeah. Yeah. So we've been trying to be a little more contemplative in these services. So I just want you to sit back, contemplate what you heard, and then we'll sing a song and then we'll have some closing words.